Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 241 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hi, Adam. How's it going? I'm exhausted today for some reason. I, that seems to be going around the office. Okay. Yeah, so it's not, not just me. You are not alone. Yeah. I'm the same way. Um, that's okay. We're powering through. We're recording this on a Thursday, which means we're almost at the end of the week. But if you're listening to this, it's the beginning of the week. So you may also be exhausted. That is also true. Mondays tend to do that. Uh, today's episode is an interview I did with Malcolm Hansen, who is a debut novelist, and his book came out uh, at the end of May. It's called They Come in All Colors. Uh, I did this interview in PLA. I think there's like one more from PLA that I did. Um, But it is basically a story about a mix of two different places, the Deep South and New York City in the 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, It's about a biracial teenage boy who finds himself. He was first in New York City. And then he ends up going to a town where his parents grew up in in the Deep South and kind of realizes all the racial tensions are much worse than he thought and how he kind of handles that and how he deals with growing up in that kind of day and age. So Malcolm was really interesting. Uh, He was a super cool dude, very intelligent, um, and was really excited to be on a podcast, which is always nice. So I'm excited for people to listen to this. Um, If they have any thoughts or if they want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? They can visit our website. Uh, professionalbooknerds.com where you can find all of our social media links including Instagram and Twitter well actually only Instagram and Twitter <laughs> at probooknerds and you can also um, email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com on our website there is also links to join our Viber community if you want to come and join and chat books with everybody yeah somebody had the idea like two weeks ago and they asked us hey can we do the nerd nine in here it's like once a week we've been asking one of the nerd nine questions which is fun to see what people have to say about their favorite books and reading places and all that jazz. So uh, anything else you think people should know about? No, I think that's everything. Okay, cool. Me too. I hope you guys are enjoying what I think is like the second day of July at this point. I don't remember the dates, but July. I think you are correct. Yeah. So welcome to July. Oh my God, we're halfway through the year. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi everyone, this is Adam again, and today I'm incredibly excited to be joined by debut author Malcolm Hansen, whose novel They Come in All Colors comes out later this May. It's a story of a biracial teenager in America, and I'm excited to kind of break down how this novel came to be. So, Malcolm, thank you so much for kind of braving the... ...be here, Adam. So, can you kick us off by giving everybody maybe an introduction to your debut novel? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the genesis was... uh, a conversation that I had a very long time ago with my dad, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm, I went to elementary school just outside of Boston yeah. in a town called Watertown, mm-hmm. and uh, one day after school, I, we lived right across the street mm-hmm. from my elementary school, Pasmer East, and one day after school, I come home, 
And uh, my dad asks me what I tell my friends when they, you know, when they ask what I am. Yeah. And I was surprised by the question, and I'd never thought twice about it. And uh, uh, my dad is white, mm -hmm. uh, and my stepmom, with whom I was living with at the time, was also white. And all my friends at school were white. So I told my father quite naturally, that, yeah, I tell him I'm white. Yeah. So my father sat me down for four hours after that and proceeded to explain to me why that was such a big mistake. Uh -huh. Uh, given my background, right. and so my my mother, uh, adoptive mother, I am adopted, mm -hmm. uh, is black. As and it's it's a little odd, but my uh, biological parents it's actually switched. So oh. my biological father is black, and my biological mother is white. Okay. That's not really relevant. That's right okay. Here. But what is interesting is that so here I am living in this, living with my father and my stepmother in you know outside of Boston, and kind of as a ten year old, how I see myself relative to all my friends and my, my yeah. parents is kind of like I'm just one of not just like you right basically so that's that was the genesis of the story yeah I think that's so interesting because I feel like it can come twofold one I talk to a lot of mm -hmm. diverse authors who say like they started becoming writers because they weren't seeing themselves in mm -hmm. books mm -hmm. and so they, they realized that later on in their life and they're like well I wanted to write a character who looked like me mm -hmm. but on the other hand exactly what you mentioned like when I was growing up, I, I grew up in a heavily Puerto Rican community. Mm -hmm. So I was actually, as a white middle class American, mm -hmm. I was the minority. Mm -hmm. But to me, it wasn't like, oh, these are my Puerto Rican friends, right. these are my Mexican friends, these right. are just my friends. Right. And so it is, it's just an interesting thing to think about as a kid. Yes. You're just like, I'm a, I'm a person, they're a person. Exactly. So we look the same. And so what made you want to write the story now? I'm curious because yeah. you had this four-hour conversation yes. with your dad. So that, that conversation, you know, obviously sat with me for quite a while. It was life-changing in that it changed the way I saw myself uh, relative to everyone around me mm -hmm. and, and the world. And so, you know, as a, as a 10 and 11, 12-year-old, you know, child growing up, obviously there wasn't much more I could do rather just know that I wasn't going to make that mistake ever again right. in terms of, you know, I had this new way of seeing myself and realized, you know, biologically how I needed to think about myself um, uh, so you know it wasn't until college when I really started engaging with books in a whole new way mm -hmm. and my father was an academic and my father you know big writer big reader uh, both my my parents were uh, but they you know had never really introduced me to novels and the kind of fiction that was you know that spoke to me personally right that really didn't happen until college mm -hmm. so you know so I found myself like the, the most interesting and exciting classes for me were those in literature uh -huh. and so I was gobbling up all of these books and I'm doing very well in my literature classes but that was when it dawned on me that instead of being an academic and following in my father's footsteps like it would be far more interesting to actually write these books uh -huh. and to see if I could write them now I knew you know what a kind of you know, all that that entailed, or had a sense of all that entailed. It meant, you know, a life of poverty. It meant, you know, <laughs> inevitable failure. It meant all of these things. But, you know, and that is where I felt like that kind of flame from the 10-year-old was still in there simmering. Uh -huh. And there was something that I wanted to see what would happen if I, I fanned it a little bit. Yeah. So that's where that started that's happening. That's really interesting. So, okay, so the story is kind of a, a coming-of-age story. Absolutely. And set in the civil rights yes. moment, correct? Okay, so... There's, you know, racial issues in school and all sorts of things. So what made you want to write a story in this particular time period? Yes. So I didn't know that at first. Yeah. Um, so at first I just thought, you know what, I want to create a character that has to grapple with some of the issues that I'm grappling with. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, knowing, seeing 
you know, what life looked like for me as someone who is a very light-skinned biracial person. Who many people, you know, don't think about, don't see me as someone of color necessarily, mm -hmm. or if they do see me of color, they're not quite sure what I am. So this was something that I wanted to explore. So that kind of set a direction for me. Um, and I knew that I wanted to see, like, imagine or re try to reimagine what life would have looked like for me if I was growing up in the early mm -hmm. 60s. So really it was about, in, in a moment of intense, you know, social, cultural upheaval in right. this country, you know, how does this person fit in? How does, how does their particular, like, take on life, you know, get dealt with, get handled uh -huh. in that context? So being a time that you didn't actually grow up in, what was kind of your research process like when you were... And you decided, okay, this is the time I want to write in. Yeah. What went into determining how to accurately portray sure. this time frame? Sure. Well, it was a little bit, you know, so I was born in 1969, so I felt like an affinity for the, for the 60s. Sure. I can only claim a little <laughs> bit. So it wasn't like I was writing that far afield in terms of, you know, the world that I had kind of been introduced to. Uh -huh. You know, as a child, I have this kind of very vivid memories of the early 70s, very vivid. And I right. feel that kind of anchors me you know, very uh, close to the period that I was exploring. Oh, right, yeah. So it also, the you know, because it has a split setting, part rural, deep south mm -hmm. Georgia, uh, and urban New York, cosmopolitan New yeah. York, you know, I felt that I just had to, as much of it was working in the time as in the actual rural setting. And, you know, the rural setting, it actually didn't come to me it wasn't that hard for it to come to me. What I felt I had to do was I had to anchor myself in a few highly textured details of that period, yeah. and then I could begin to work with that. So were any kind of the aspects of the story, obviously everyone who is an adult has a coming-of-age story. Mm -hmm. um, that's just how life works. Mm -hmm. But how much of this was somewhat autobiographical at all? Like your experiences, you know, even growing because you mentioned when you were really young, like, it sounds like you had all of his white friends but it didn't mm -hmm. sound like there was too much you know, like persecution or too mm -hmm. many no. issues so no. how much of, was there any part of the story that was yeah. somewhat so, ironical so, so the inspiration entirely because it becomes like capturing the consciousness of an individual who's just at the point of realizing oh so this is how this is what I am and this is how I fit in Yeah. and capturing that moment and all of the kind of the psychological and emotional wheels that are turning mm -hmm. at that moment. So although for me, it was late 70s, you know, Boston mm -hmm. uh, for this character, it's early 60s, you know, deep south Georgia, but still a, a white community uh -huh. or there is a, 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 a significant white community that this person is, mm -hmm. is a part of and with whom he has been uh, you know, told to identify with. Yeah. That this is, these are his people and he needs to like think of it yeah. that way. So the inspiration entirely, and then it just becomes a matter of like, okay, but I'm putting this in a, in a slightly different, you know, or in a different context, mm -hmm. and, but with, a, with many similarities. And that becomes something that, you know, you can work with and you can begin to dig into. I'm really curious, I, and I'm sorry I'm bouncing around no. it a little bit, but when you had that conversation with your father, after that, did that, you know, I, I know that there's kind of this like push and pull of people where it's like, determining how the world sees you and how you mm -hmm. see yourself in the world. Did it kind of affect like the books you started reading or the way that you looked at things once you had that conversation other than the fact of like better, you know, perhaps describing your cultural background with someone to ask you, but did that conversation sort of shape the way that you approached 
the way you lived? It did, but it was a delayed effect. So as a 10-year-old, you're like, okay, great, Dad, thank you. Right, exactly. You know, you're out playing kickball, baseball, yeah. you know, whatever, wiffle ball. So not at the time, but it's like, it's this thing that's like sitting there and it's, uh, you know, it's germinating. It's sitting there and it, you're kind of, it, it, it's in your head, but it's not somehow active. It hasn't been fully activated. And that process didn't, you know, come in, until, you know, kind of young adulthood, honestly. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the books, I was like, well, I guess I have to read, you know, not have to, but I'm interested in exploring books by writers of color. So I remember, so my dad, for example, hadn't put ever put Richard Wright in my hand, hadn't put ever put Baldwin in my hand, hadn't put Ellison in my hand. And by the time I got around to reading Ellison, I was blown away. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah. Like, and then when I said, okay, but if I ever write, and this is like kind of fast forwarding a little bit, sure. It wasn't about writing, you know, the story of a black kid. It's mm -hmm. about writing the story of a black kid who kind of looks white. Yeah. And so when I when I realized that that's kind of my loyalty, uh -huh. that's that to my that's that's my that's take the take on the world. Yeah. It's specific to this character that I'm developing. Then it became like, okay, what other stories out there? Well, we know of this myth of the tragic mulatto, which is this huge, you know, it's a, a genre uh -huh. of literature that obviously was big in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Right. But for me, it was fascinating. Yeah. Because I'm like, how did people kind of, you know, uh, perceive individuals that look like me? Well, it was a tragic tale. Yeah. You know, one of shame and one of, which of course is, is has its place in this story as well. Um, but for me... I remember thinking quite vividly that I wanted to write something that did justice mm -hmm. to the, the story of someone of mixed race origin yeah. that in a way that was somehow more honest, mm -hmm. more full-bodied yeah. than these very kind of uh, stereotyped versions right. of what this experience looks right. like. Well, I think that gets down to having, there's, we have these conversations all the time, my co-host and I, about diverse, writing diversity. I am a white middle-class American. She's a white middle-class American. Like, mm -hmm. We can add diverse characters to our stories, but it's treading very carefully. Like, okay, well, we don't want to create a caricature of mm -hmm. a mulatto person. Mm -hmm. We want. It's very challenging. Whereas you have the ability to write it, as opposed to just someone saying like, "Oh, well, white people are going to say that he's mm -hmm. not white enough, and black people are going to say that they're not black enough." You can actually write that story by what you know you experience and I think that's that's a story only you can tell yeah so, and that's to me that that's such an important part actually my um, my roommate in college one of my best friends growing up was uh, he, his dad was African American mm -hmm. and his mother was white and he mm -hmm. said that stuff all the time like he would read these books and he's like Mm -hmm. This is not what I... Mm -hmm. I don't want go through life having mm -hmm. only people say mm -hmm. I'm not black enough or exactly. not white enough. There's so much more to it. Absolutely. And, yeah, and that, that, that is so accurate. And, um, you know, I just, uh, you know, wasn't... You know, it's one thing, you know, there are a lot of people who, when they start writing a book, they have to figure out, the, the big thing is, like, they know that they want to write, and it's like, you know, okay, well, what, there's so much to write about, like, right. how do you pick, like, what's going to be my thing? Yeah. So, clearly, for me, that had been kind of laid out for me. It's like, I know what my objective is, I have to somehow explore this experience wherever I end up putting it and setting it in time. Um, but then it became like executing on it. Yeah. And that was the nut that was almost impossible to crack. <laughs> yeah. It was like, it, because, because, you know, the experience has been, somehow I, I feared when I was halfway in, maybe I just suppressed it. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe I had hidden it away, boxed it up, <laughs> locked it up in some way to kind of 
help me yeah. get through my day to day. Yeah. And now I have to unlock that box. Yeah, to open it up. Open so. it up. And for a while, it wasn't going very well. <laughs> Somehow, my, you know, because you're trying to get something that feels like what you want it to be. You want it to be raw and you want it to be honest. And for the good, bad, and the ugly in it. And that was very, very hard to do. But there became a point where. You know, it just started to break open. Yeah. And I started out, and that was when it became really hard. Uh -huh. But then it became clear because I knew the execution was about doing this very hard thing, going to a place mm -hmm. that I hadn't, never mind as a writer, as a person necessarily challenged myself to go. And that the, it became crucial for the writing. So at that point when you kind of hit that, you know, proverbial wall, mm -hmm. which I think is when a lot of people end up letting the story fall by the wayside. Did you have um, like a literary agent or anything at that point? Okay, so what? kept you pushing forward because I, I I am guilty of having you know a dozen half-finished manuscripts so. so that's a great question and you know the, the the short answer is that my wife calls me the most stubborn person in the world <laughs> and absolutely refused to quit uh -huh. um, and now it was a bit you know in the context of having a family it was a bit suicidal because I said I can do this and I know I can do this it's yeah. just a matter of time you know but then years roll by uh -huh. and then there comes a point where you know now you start out with getting married and then you have one kid and then two kids and it's like mm -hmm. the wife says you know dear this is fantastic I appreciate what you're trying to do mm -hmm. you know but maybe we should start considering something else and I just refused right and that's all and I, I thought that there was something I was doing wrong at uh -huh. every point and at every stage and I thought I had to figure out what I was doing wrong and I had to fix it yeah and I thought that for whatever kind of walls presented themselves I had to figure out a way to get past it and I'm very fortunate mm -hmm. that it wasn't there wasn't one kind of magical moment where everything opens up for you and it's uh -huh. like you're but at every turn I, I, I found a way to get me a few more steps mm -hmm. and I feel like the writing of the story was going from one point like that to another point like yeah. getting a little inching closer having breakthroughs that somehow point the way they don't point the way to the end destination yeah but they point the way to the next turn so was it did you find yourself getting like hitting walls from like the structure of the story or was it like you would I know I, there's a lot of authors who I've spoken to who will purposely write themselves into yeah. a corner and then sit back and think how they're going to get themselves yeah. out of it so what what part of the process was the part that was kind of yeah. tough to break through so, for you? so first it was the uh uh, like wh whose story was it? Because mm -hmm. there are three. It's a, it's a, it's a, the small family, mother, father, son, yeah. and I was committed to like really being full-bodied in terms of presenting them both, which was great yeah. because in a sense then I had three really strong characters. But then it became unclear: is this the dad story or the son story? Mm -hmm. Like the father was that strong, and people who read early versions of the draft was like, man, you have the the dad like down pat, yeah. and um, the dad was. In, but then it, be, it became to feel like. Like it was the dad's the story, dad story, and that's not what I had envisioned. Right. And then I felt like I was failing something. And this is like, you go to the thing that's easier first, right? Uh -huh. and I can nail it. But then it was like, well, what about the mother, and what about... The, and so so then I began, you know, writing, trying to, to double down on, on, on this child narrator mm -hmm. and, and getting him right in the same way that I got the dad. And so that was... And then the, the mom was the, you know, the mother figure was the last character that I really felt that I, felt that I nailed. But then they like I figured out I, yeah. could, I could get right on paper. That's uh -huh. what I meant to say. But then there became the, the follow-on issue was one of having gotten the story. There was an issue with the narrative distance because I wanted to write it with a, with the the protagonist, the child protagonist, as an adult looking back. Yeah. So I first I flesh out these three strong characters. I, I know that it's the child telling the story, his story, but he's telling it as an adult reflecting back. And then there was all of this like you have all of this 
this um, internal dialogue that gets in the way because you have all of these years that separate you from the event, the right. narrator from the events, and he wants to riff on all of these things that he can, uh -huh. perspectives that he has to add to this experience. But I didn't want that. Uh -huh. I wanted it to be as close to that child as possible. So those were the key things. I'm like, how do I get to, like, whose story is this? Figuring out that it's the child's yeah. story. And somehow that has to show on the text. And then figuring out, well, what's the narrative distance here? Is it right to have this person as a 50-year-old reflecting back? No. And that that was when I arrived at, I want to somehow keep it as close to that kid as possible. No, no, we don't want an adult getting in the way. Right. We want the kid giving it to oh, us straight. Like, I, oh, I'm beyond, I'm getting stressed just thinking about the whole process. That's amazing. Um, so, oh my God, did you have like, I guess, how did you track this? Was it, you know, are you the type of person who has like this huge poster board of like, okay, if A, then B, if C, then D, like, because there's so many moving parts of the story. I, how were you tracking it all? Yeah, no, it was messy. It was very <laughs> messy. And there are many, you know, uh, it, it, it always felt like even to this day, even to like the last little bit of editing, mm -hmm. it always felt like um, it's hard to kind of keep together because yeah. there are all of these moving parts. Um, and somehow uh, you know I, I see people with their poster boards and, and, and their post-it notes and mm -hmm. I've never done that um, I've just had a very messy manuscript that I try to keep as much of it in my head as possible sure. as challenging as that is and it, ultimately it's you know you work in portions mm -hmm. and um, you know I hoped that there would be a moment when things kind of came together. Yeah. If it's in a way that you can't predict, you can't even like formulate, it's not like there's some calculation where you're like, and this is when it all kind of happens. Right. You hope that there's that moment when it just kind of, things click. Yeah. Like as if when you're looking at one of these like uh, um, paintings mm -hmm. where you have to stare at for 10 minutes. Oh before yeah, kind one of the magic eyes. Yeah, yeah. Ma and I was, I wanted it so much to be like that. And um, and I think that in a, in, a, in a crazy way, that happened. Mm -hmm. Now the scary thing is, is that it didn't happen until much later on than I thought. So sure. here I am working through this very messy manuscript, just trusting that I have to tighten these parts. But at some point, there's going to be this magic moment where they yeah. kind of click together, and and that happened. Yeah, I, 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 you know, you're talking about being the most stubborn person in the world that finishes too. But I think it also shows, especially writing your first novel. I think it shows a flexibility of like having a such a concrete idea at the beginning of what you wanted the story to be about, and then realizing like, okay, well I'm. I have a strong father figure and I need to write this son and I need to write this mother. I think it shows a flexibility of, like, of really any author to have the, this story that you want to tell and being able to kind of let go of that original idea and sort of mold it to what it needs to be in the end. Yeah, impressive. very important. Yeah. Um, okay, so you, looking at your bio, you have lived all over the place and I, I kind of want to ask some questions about that. So can you maybe take people through... You kind of have a, a globe-trotting life that you've done after college. So where did you kind of where did you live and work after college? Sure. So, uh, so right after school, I, uh, after graduating, I was very interested in pursuing an MFA, um, but I went the the kind of I, I wasn't courageous enough, mm -hmm. and so I had all of my friends uh, at, that had graduated with me at Stanford were getting these. So this is '95 we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So Silicon Valley is booming. Um, and my friends were getting these great jobs and uh, working in the software business, making gobs of money straight out of college. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of what I want to do yeah. too. I thought it was very attractive. And so I got, you know, I was able to get a job at, at, at Oracle mm -hmm. and as a lexicographer actually going through dictionaries, creating a, 
uh, uh, a knowledge base they're using for some technology, whatever. So I stayed in that, that milieu for a while, for about three years. Uh, I moved from Oracle onto another search engine called InfoSeq. Mm -hmm. um, and then about three, you know, after about three years in, I bottomed out and I was miserable. Um, and for me, one of the best ways to clear my head and to kind of get my bearings straight um, is traveling. Mm -hmm. So and traveling has always been a very important part of my life. It's been an important part of kind of understanding my place in the world and people around me. Yeah. Knowing that there are so many different kinds of people in this world. It's fascinating. And you, you grow so much with travel. So I went a very kind of abrupt route and I sold all of my stuff. And I have been a motorcycle enthusiast since I, I, I was a teenager and got myself a motorcycle and rode down to Ecuador. Uh -huh. And that was my kind of, you know, crossing or the, yeah. the, the, the mythological river and uh -huh. like I'm going for broke this is yeah. it there's no going back and so I rode all the way down to Ecuador and my mission sole mission was to kind of clear out my head figure out where I'd taken a wrong turn mm -hmm. how to write that and thinking that that would involve you know writing of some kind yeah I got the goal was to go down to the south uh, southernmost tip of Argentina, Tierra del Fuego. I failed on that because I started to go broke in Ecuador, <laughs> which is about two quarters of the way there. I was gonna say, you're there. pretty far down. So there. yeah, I was pretty far down. I got broke, and then I parked the bike. I got the cheapest place I could get, you know, in a rooming house. Uh -huh. uh, got myself a typewriter and said, "This is where it's going to start," and I started. And and the first thing was just. Uh, you know, confronting the realities of sitting at a desk for up to six hours a day yeah. and saying, can I do this? And is it something that I just kind of think is would be interesting to me or actually, you know, in the flesh works for me? Yeah. And it worked for me. And I was kind of, it's kind of disturbing how long I could hold myself away for without loving it, just yeah. being in the head, you know, and on the page. So that's what I, so I was in Ecuador for three, four years and I made a promise to myself. My friends were like, Where, where's this guy gone? He's disappeared off the face of the earth. Are we ever going to see him again? I'm getting back to them like, you know, I'm not going to come back empty-handed. I'm going to come back when I have something to show. Yeah. So, sure enough, I return, but with a disaster of a manuscript. That was the first never published, never to be seen by anyone, right? Uh-huh. So, long story short, I come back to the States, uh, Portland, Maine, at that point, living in a friend's basement, uh -huh. figuring out... I need to get money. My life's going south quickly. Yeah. And I'm not going to quit this writing thing. And I just I gave it like the college try. It didn't work uh -huh. out. Get a real job. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have a, a friend uh, who is an editor, works in uh, regional publications up in Maine, who uh, had become close and had kind of pointed the way. Mm -hmm. And it, it gave me what I needed to kind of keep going a mm -hmm. little bit, right? In bite-sized pieces. So at that point... I was pretty uh, miserable, or let's say, not fully fulfilled uh -huh. in Portland, Maine. I wanted to like, I was feeling antsy again, yeah. I wanted to do my thing somewhere else. So I left and I went to Europe. Mm -hmm. And I was in Europe for the next year and a half, and I actually drove from Sweden down to the Algarve, where I was, which is the southernmost part of Portugal, Portugal yeah. and uh, on the Mediterranean. And I was lucky to get this job babysitting uh, a small hotel on the off season oh my gosh. and sure enough I had this they had gave me the, I was the manager of this place but they had me. well you can imagine what I was doing on the overnight yeah show. I had my laptop there writing my tail off now the, this <laughs> this is the book this is another book that so, you should write this is I would read 500 pages about this this is like yeah. just is there more after I didn't want to cut yeah, you off no, no, keep going no. so that so so it was that where I, I, I fleshed out what would become the coming up voice. I got the I got the 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 the, the, got the, the seeds the, sort the, of like yeah a... the nuts and bolts of it. I understood, uh -huh. you know, the outline. I could understand there was something there 
and I attempted to go with That's at that point. That's incredible. I'm serious. I would read more about that. Um, do you think, you know, talking about <laughs> this story about, you know, um, civil rights and everything and this coming of show. Do you think living in all these different places and seeing how not only all these different cultures but how these different cultures view America, do you think that helps shape how you were able to go at a coming of age tale from someone that might look and sound like you but is from a different slightly different time period like did it help you think seeing all these different experiences absolutely like perspective is so important i mean it, it's really it cannot be overstated and, and travel gives you helps to give you perspective mm-hmm. uh, if you're open to it um and so for me it definitely having you know understanding that your story isn't the story of all stories the story of the end all stories right yeah but there are other people out there that have a fascinating things going on yeah. in their lives and and incredible you know obstacles that they're overcoming personal and otherwise yeah. is, is is tremendously important mm-hmm. and, and again it helps yeah it helps shape like you know how how you see yourself relative to the things that you're going through and you're you're one more person on this planet with of course to you they're like you know they're the end all be all yeah um but to everyone else, no. It's just, and, and they're just, it's an interesting story. And, you know, um, I think it helps, I think it helps realize that, you know, you're going to have to do a lot to make this that someone wants to read. Uh-huh. That, you know. I, the, the idea of this whole story is so interesting to me. And I, I, I hope, like, it's just such a great way of going about, like, understanding someone else's story. I think that's the, be- the best way to understand other cultures or even just other people who may look just like you. Yes. Reading someone else's story, yes. it, it sparks an interest, at least for me. Like, I've read, like, I will read a book by a Nigerian author and then I'll go to the library and be like, do you have more information about just Nigeria as a country? It, it opens up this whole idea. Um, so what were kind of some of the books and authors that you were reading when you were growing up? I know you mentioned kind of reading a lot of classics, but what were some of the stuff that you read? Yeah, so for me, there was always a problem finding, like, kind of the literature that, that spoke to me personally, uh, personally and fully, wholly, yeah. right? Because there are books out there that speak to parts of you, but no one is kind of like, you know, has your book out there uh-huh. on the bookshelf. Um, it wasn't until, like, fairly later on when I realized that... The, the books that spoke to me and that seemed to be, uh, how do you say, like, food, um, were books by people like Burroughs and Miller and even Thompson, Hunter Thompson. Yeah. Um, people that are writing on transgressive uh, books. And they, where they're going places that other people don't dare. Where they're writing and saying things, whether it has to do with sex or drugs, that it's a place that people don't feel comfortable uh-huh. You know, tackling and confronting and embracing and making this is like, you know, um, making their shtick. And, and I love that because to me, so much a big component of the kind of writing I do in the genre that I love is the um, is, is courage mm-hmm. uh, to go to these places and to write these the kinds of things that other people, you know, aren't. Aren't, aren't doing yeah and uh, so someone who's doing that now that's very inspiring is like Paul Beatty mm-hmm. um, his recent book The Sellout yeah. reading that I thought that was very much falls in line with those in that it's taking the stereotypical the stereotypes and it's parodying yeah and I feel like I have some there's something uh, there's a commonality in terms of the thing what I did in that uh, it's taking a stereotype and giving you a character who has internalized it. right yeah. and so we can see so but it, it's it's being open to flipping the table. Uh-huh. It's being open to writing something where down is up and up is down, and you're not sure which is right anymore. Yeah. 
um, and I like that. It's so funny you mentioned Hunter S. Thompson, because as you were describing your travels, I was like, this is very, like, fear and loathing, or, yes. like, rum diaries type of a story. You've got, like, the, the outline of that already, so. Last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading your book? Um, yeah, I, um, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I want people uh, to be, to think twice about, you know, before they kind of, you know, here's the thing. When I began writing into the story, mm -hmm. I was realizing that the characters I'm writing are people that you see. And that was somehow was, was an intense recognition for me because I realized that the mother figure, he's mom, like she became, you know, who she was was someone that I knew that I, I, I could see on the street. I could visualize just walk. These are people that are real people that we walk and we have no idea. Yeah. And, um, you know, where they've come from, what their background, their, you know, how they ended up where they are. Um, and, and the same with, with uh, uh, Huey and the same with the father figure, Buck. And I want people to, uh, to recognize that all is not as it appears. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.